because at that school, which only had about 130 students, of the 78 who were there when the tsunami struck, 74 died, and 10 out of the 11 teachers died in the inundation. Hello and welcome to Deep Dive from the Japan Times. I'm Oscar Boyd. March 11th is the 10th anniversary of the Great East Japan earthquake. And for the next couple of episodes of Deep Dive, we're going to be looking at the effects of that disaster, starting with a conversation with my guest today, Richard Lloyd Parry. Richard is the Asia editor of the Times of London and the author of the award-winning book, Ghosts of the Tsunami, which focuses on the story of a small elementary school in the town of Okawa, which is located about 200 miles north of Tokyo where on March 11th, 2011, 74 of the 78 pupils who were at the school that day lost their lives in the tsunami. Richard describes this event as perhaps the greatest individual tragedy amidst the greater catastrophe of the earthquake. And Ghosts of the Tsunami is a must-read for anyone interested in learning about the effects of the tsunami. It's a beautifully written, harrowing account of what happened on 3.11 and the events that unfolded afterwards when it became clear to survivors that the deaths of those children were entirely unnecessary. Richard Lloyd Parry, welcome to Deep Dive. Thank you so much for joining me today. Well, thank you very much for inviting me. Before we get stuck into Ghosts of the Tsunami, I'd like to actually begin with your own personal experiences of the 311 earthquake. So taking you back 10 years, I'm sure you remember it well. Where were you when it happened? Well, I was in in Tokyo in my office on the 10th floor in Ginza. And we we felt this tremendously powerful earthquake. By that time, I'd already lived in Japan for 16 years. So, of course, you get used to significant tremors a handful of times a year. But this was clearly something new. This was the worst earthquake I'd ever experienced. And for the first time in my life, I dived under the desk and the shaking went on. It went on for a very long time. I read later it was six minutes, but it was really difficult to judge time passing. There's something very unreal Mm. about those moments when the windows are buzzing, the blinds are rattling, you can hear things slumping on the shelves. That was the frightening thing. It wasn't the intensity of the shaking itself, because it never became destructively bad in Tokyo. It was the feeling that you didn't know when it was going to end. But it did end in Tokyo. We came up. There was no serious damage. We looked outside. There was a fire visible uh, in, in Tokyo Bay. An oil refinery caught fire. But it came, became clear fairly soon that Tokyo had had a bad shake, but there wasn't any terrible damage. It was after that that the news began to come out of northeast Japan about the tsunami and by the end of the day, we realised that this was not just a bad earthquake, but an absolutely tremendous historic natural disaster. Mm-hmm. So you realised by the end of the day, the extent of the damage up in Tohoku, all along the northeast coast of Japan. But how soon after the quake did you actually head up there to begin reporting up on it? Yeah, I mean, the, f- the first sign that something really extraordinary had happened was actually as the tsunami was coming in. I, I Many people will remember this, but the One of the extraordinary things about it was that it was broadcast live. Uh, NHK, all the TV channels and the newspapers, of course, all keep helicopters for moments like this. And there's one film, which I remember vividly and have watched and rewatched again and again, of the wave coming in close to the town of Natori, just south of Sendai. And you see it coming in like a kind of 
brown monster and it's already got houses on floating on its back and you can see the roofs of these houses that have been uprooted and some of them have flames coming out and it goes over the fields and it goes over the roads and you see cars trying to drive away from it being swallowed up so that was within an hour and a half and and then we knew that this was really remarkable uh, but the the scale of the destruction and the the breadth of it all up and down that coast was really i suppose obvious by the evening and I headed on up there the following morning. Uh, we hired a car uh, with a small group of colleagues. We started driving up. It took 24 hours to get there, so we didn't arrive in Sendai on the coast till early on the morning of the Sunday. And by that time, of course, the other thing that was happening was that the, the news was coming from the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear plant of the explosions and, and what turned out to be the meltdown there. Mm, of course. And when did you begin to understand what happened at Okawa Elementary School and the story there? That was a lot later. I spent close to two weeks immediately afterwards travelling up and down the affected towns, Minami Sanriku, Kesenuma, Ishinomaki, and then came back and, and returned to Tohoku repeatedly over, over the next several months. It was... Actually, the six-month anniversary, that was when I first went up to Okawa School. There was so much else going on that, you know, there'd been such a, a massive tragedy that the, the individual incidents didn't all become clear and, until a while later. So, yes, it was in September that, that I went up there and visited the school for the first time. And could you paint a picture for us? Where is Okawa located and what was it like six months after the earthquake when you first visited? It's a very beautiful place. It's sited on the Kitakami River, which is one of Japan's, I think, Tohoku's biggest rivers, which is a, a notable river in several ways. It hasn't been extensively dammed like a lot of Japan's rivers have. So even at its mouth, where it enters the sea, it's a really very full, very wide, beautiful river. Reeds are, are cultivated there. The reeds that come from the estuary are very prized for, for thatch, for thatching temples and, and shrines and traditional houses. And w when I went down there six months after, uh, when, when as you drive down this broad river, of course, at first, th there's no obvious sign of the disaster because although the wave penetrated quite a long way, it was only a couple of miles. And then you, you come into the, the area that's been affected and we could see on either side of the road, uh, you know, ruined houses, most of the mud and the uh, the gareki, you know, the, the broken fragmentary rubble had been cleared up by them. And then you come down and you see the bridge, the the, uh, the Kitakami Great Bridge over the estuary had been destroyed in the tsunami and that was being rebuilt. There were men in yellow hats swarming over that doing the construction work. And then you pass there and you, you, you turn around a corner and you see this field of, of mud, essentially. And this is where a village, a couple of villages had been. On this flat plain between the, the hills and the sea, there had been hundreds of people living. And now the only thing left was the school, which was well built, very strongly built uh, 20 or 30 years earlier, and was now this, this ruin, this very striking ruin in this otherwise desolate space. Thank you. 
Let's zoom in on Okawa Elementary School and what happened there that day. And I'll start with the headline figure, which is that 74 of the 78 pupils there that day and 10 of the 11 teachers, they all died in the tsunami waters. So what went wrong at the school and why did so many people die in the tsunami there? Well, people who are here may remember this, that on the 9th of March 2011, there was also a strong earthquake in that area of of the sea off Tohoku. That turned out to be a precursor of the really big one. We felt that one in Tokyo too. And um, they had felt that two days before on the the Wednesday. And and they'd done what schools are all efficiently drilled to do. The kids had gone onto their desks, then got out, put their little helmets on and gone and paraded in in the playground, had their names ticked off and then got back in. So it, in a way, it wasn't such a shock and such an unfamiliar thing when this stronger earthquake came on the Friday afternoon. And it was right near the end of term. Everyone was getting ready for the end of the school year. But they did the same thing again. They put on their helmets, they went out in the playground and they turned on the radio. And very soon after came the, the tsunami warning. What they should have done at that point was to gone to a place of evacuation from, from tsunami. But they didn't. They stayed for 45 minutes. And at that point, the tsunami came in both across the flat land from the sea, but also up the river and over the embankment wall that divided the river from the land. So it came, in fact, from two directions and swallowed up the school. Some children had been picked up by their parents at that point. Most hadn't. And, and almost no one survived. For, for a while, that was that was all that we really knew, you know, that the this terrible thing had happened. It was very hard to piece together the event in between the earthquake and evacuation and, and the wave coming in. But week by week, month by month, piece by piece, that story was eventually fitted together. Mm, let's hold on that for a moment. Could you actually put it into context for us? We know tens of thousands of people died in the tsunami following the earthquake. So was what happened at Okawa something that was being repeated up and down the Tohoku coast, or was it the exception to the rule? That was the thing, that it emerged eventually after the disaster that of all the places to be in Japan, a Japanese school is the very safest place you could be. I mean, they analyse the, the the deaths of those who, who perished. There were 18,500 people died in the tsunami. And overwhelmingly, they were, they were old people. I think more than half of them were over 65. And in, in the whole disaster, I think school-aged children, I believe 75 died. And 74 of those were in one place at this school. Mm-hmm. So it was really a, a, a tremendous anomaly and, and extremely difficult to understand for that reason. I mean, the reasons Japanese schools are so safe is that they're, they're very well built, they're strongly built to resist seismic shocks. The standards are higher than that for residential buildings. And everyone's trained to expect this. You know, the teachers, the kids expect earthquakes. They have these drills regularly. They have their little helmets. They know what to do. So it was even harder to understand why this one thing had happened here. So why was the death toll there so high? Why didn't the school just evacuate to higher ground after the tsunami warning was issued across Tohoku? 
that was the key question that that after the initial shock of grief had worn off, a lot of the parents wanted to answer. And it was made all the more stark because the school is right next to a hill. Not, not a very steep hill, not a very high hill, but certainly high enough. And in five minutes of not particularly difficult walking up a path, you could be out of the range of, of any tsunami. So the, the escape route was there. It wasn't taken. Um, what emerged over, over months of complicated investigations, a certain amount of obfuscation on the part of the authorities, and eventually uh, a, a legal case in the Japanese courts, was that a couple of things. The, the headmaster of the school had been away that day, just by chance. The man in charge, the deputy headmaster, didn't have his authority, was probably rather an indecisive man. The other thing was that the, the school manual which governs the conduct of everything from you know, sports days to parents' meetings to natural disasters, didn't clearly state what you should do in case of a tsunami. It, it told you what to do in case of an earthquake, get out of the school and tick off the names. But mm. when it came to tsunami warning, it simply said it was a kind of standard boilerplate wording. It said something like evacuate to a park or something. And in that, in the countryside, there are no parks. There are plenty of fields, there are mountains and hills, but no parks. And the other thing was that the, the school itself was an evacuation centre for the village. So a lot of people in the village, many of them elderly people, were coming into the school because that's where they'd been told to go in an earthquake. And having made the effort to get there, they didn't want to then climb up the hill. So it seems as if there were disagreements. We only know this from parents who went in to pick up their kids who overheard fragmentary conversations while they were passing through before leaving. But it sounds like there were arguments and disagreements among the villagers, the deputy headmaster and the teachers. And when they finally did make the decision to move, the tsunami was already breaking over the fields and over the embankment of the river. Yeah, I, I want to come back to what you were saying about the immediacy of that potential escape route at the school. Because I read your book and in it you do express how easy it would have been for the students and their teachers to escape. But it was only when I actually visited Okawa Elementary School, I got a chance to go a couple of weeks ago, that I realised just how close the school was to the hill to that potential escape at the back of the playground is an amphitheatre type area where I guess they would have put on performances. You can still see the children's drawings there, the paintings on, on one of the toppled walls. And barely five metres from that amphitheatre area is a clearly visible path that goes up into the hills. And if they had acted quickly, they all could have escaped. Yes, I mean, they used to, the children used to go up the hill for science classes. A little way up, there was a, a mushroom patch and they grew, I think, matsutake there. So, you know, it wasn't a, a difficult thing to do. The other thing was that in front of the school, it was near the end of the school day, the school bus was waiting. With, it, with a couple of journeys, if people had squeezed in, they could have taken the entire school uh, right out of range, you know, up the mountain road and been perfectly safe. I'm trying to put myself in the shoes of the people who might have been there that day and struggling to make the decision to evacuate. Was it conceivable at the time that a tsunami might hit Okawa Elementary School? Is it near enough the coast to be thought of as being at risk from tsunami inundation? I mean, this, I think, is, is the key. 
is that the, the people, not only in the school but in the village, didn't feel themselves to be living by the sea. And when you go there now, because everything's gone, and you stand in that school, the sea is very obvious. It's there, it's about a little over a mile away. It's not dead close. There's a stretch of fields in between, but you can see it there. But mm-hmm. back then, you couldn't. What, what you saw was a village, a standard Japanese village with a jumble of houses, and there was a doctor's surgery that was a few stories high, but nothing very big. So you couldn't see the sea. You couldn't hear seagulls. What you were aware of was, was the river. And the people there thought of themselves as, as river dwellers, not as sea dwellers. But of course, with a tsunami of this scale, that there was no significant obstacle between the sea and the village. The fields were flat. The, r- the river mouth was very, very wide. In some ways, the, the estuary of the river acted as a kind of conduit for the tsunami. I, I learned this later. And, and channeled it and in some ways increased its force. Uh, and then there was a point where the, the riverbank was weak and the concentrated force of water could, could break over. So that, I think, psychologically explained why people were so lackadaisical. And I, I talked to a, a man from the village who barely escaped with his life. He finally eventually jumped into his car and... I mean, he was literally motoring away with the tsunami catching up with him a few feet behind. And he said, we just never imagined that. I mean, I, I heard the warnings. There were, there were vans, local government vans, driving through the village saying, a tsunami is coming, evacuate now. And people heard it, understood it, but couldn't believe it. So what happened in Okawa in the months after the tsunami, after the immediate fallout of this absolute catastrophe there? Well, I mean, at first, of course, all over the afflicted area, that there was a massive emergency. Many people had, had lost their homes. They had to be housed. They had to be fed and given water. They had to be medically treated. When, when that was over, there was the that sort of secondary struggle just to accommodate people in the, in the short term. Uh, and, and then the, there was the, the struggle to, uh, to, to bury and, and give funeral rites to the dead, to the many, many dead. So all of that, you know, it, intense activity and, and stress had, had, to, had to be got through. And it was really only after a few weeks that people were able to draw breath and ask questions such as, what happened at the school? And, and the... The people who did that were the parents of the children who died. At first, their, their greatest concern was to recover the remains of their children. And for some of them, that took several weeks. Some of them never found their kids. But when they found their kids, when they buried their families, then people began to ask, how did this happen? And how did the answers to their questions begin to emerge? One of the, I think, the crystallising moments for many of the parents, were there were um, a, a couple of lads, I think they were uh, fifth graders, and they were great friends, and um, one of them survived, and, and the other perished. And the, the boy who survived told a story about how he and his mate had been lined up in the schoolyard, and they were kind of cheeky boys, they were the class jokers. And 
they, they could hear on the radio these tsunami warnings coming through. And one of the boys, he talked to his mate, and one of them said to his teacher, Sir, there's a tsunami warning. We ought to go up the hill. And the teacher said, Shush, quieten down, stay where you are. So the two of them looked at one another and they started to slip away towards the hill. And the teacher said, Oh, you, come back. Don't be silly. Stay in line with the, the others. And, and they obeyed. And the boy who survived related that story. And this spread around the, the other parents. Questions were asked. And, and what then happened is that the Ishinomaki Education Board, the Kyoe Kuinkai, uh, all began to organise these meetings where, where parents were, were invited to come. Uh, explanatory meetings. And they were very kind of formal, a bit stiff. The bureaucrats stood up in their suits and ties in front of the parents. They, they bowed. Uh, they spoke uh, politely but very formulaically, talking of their grief and how terrible this had been. Uh, and then there were questions. And there were a whole series of these meetings. And the ones early on were, uh, were, were you know, formal and, you know, followed all the, the proprieties. But, but quite soon, uh, because the answers that were given were so unsatisfactory, the proprieties were cast aside and they became extremely heated. In some of these meetings, the, the anger and, and the rage and the frustration and the grief was absolutely explicit and people were banging their fists and raising their voices and shrieking at these abashed-looking, besuited men with downcast eyes who simply weren't able to give the answers that were needed. Mm. You mentioned earlier that there was a legal case, and I want to move forward to that because this anger that you're talking about boiled over to the point that some of the parents decided eventually to sue the city of Ishinomaki and the Miyagi Prefecture Board of Education. Could you tell me a little bit about that lawsuit? It was something that came quite late. In fact, the, there was a, there's a kind of statute of limitations on, on, on these things. And the, the papers were filed on the very last day that was possible. And the reason was that these parents didn't want to do that. Suing someone is, is felt, by, I think, by many people in Japan as an extremely aggressive thing to do. Um, very confrontational, something you want to avoid if you can. But they felt they, they were left with, with no choice. Anyway, the case was brought. It moved slowly through the, the local court. Uh, the parents won that case at the uh, end of 2016. I was present in court when, when they won that. Um, and, they, and they awarded quite significant damages. It was the equivalent, I think, of more than a million pounds at the time. But the, the respondents, the two boards of education, appealed. It went to the, the higher court they lost there, they appealed again, and finally, in the Supreme Court, the parents won their case again and were vindicated and, and awarded their damages. I mean, the whole process went on for years, as these things do, and was extremely painful for many of the parents involved. And, and a lot of people, I, I include myself, were, I think, really disgusted that the mm. authorities chose to prolong that process. And the people who paid the price, the emotional price, were these parents who'd lost their kids. It was rather sickening to see that. I wanted to ask you, why 
Do you think it's important to write a book like Ghosts of the Tsunami, to write about a disaster like this in such detail? Well, of course, I started uh, writing about it in the form of daily newspaper journalism for, for the Times. That was why I was there in the first place. But I recognised early on that it was one of those stories that was difficult to do justice to in the form of daily journalism. You, you convey the, the fact, you get something of the, uh, of, of the scale of it, but you just can't begin to encompass the, the massive nature of, of the disaster, both the physical destruction and also, I mean, to me, more importantly, the, the psychological and even the spiritual suffering. Even in the form of a book, you can't write about the whole thing. It's just too ma massive in scale. What is needed is you have to identify human stories, lesser stories that you can tell in close detail and in a compelling way, which are then able to stand in for the greater tragedy. What one of those I, I found at, at Okawa School um, and, and in the story of the, 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 the mothers of the children who died. But the other thing that was also very important was the, the story of the ghosts. And, and this is what mm. gives the, the, the book its title. So, you know, as I said, there were several stages in the, in the disaster. And it was only after about six months or maybe a bit longer, um, by which time everyone... Everyone had a roof over their heads, even if it was just a temporary tin hut. Everyone had enough to eat. Um, everyone's kids had some school to go to. And at that point, um, something very interesting started to happen. All over this region, people who were otherwise isolated from one another began to see ghosts and to have more broadly... Uh, strange, haunting, supernatural experiences. And they varied in character. Sometimes it was something very vague, just a, a feeling of, of, of unease and spookiness by the beach, by the sea. So, sometimes it was urban myths. Everyone had heard a story about a taxi driver who mm. picks up a passenger, who gives them a dress. When he gets there, he finds that the house has been washed away in the tsunami and he looks in the back and the passenger isn't there. It was a ghost that wanted to go to their home. But sometimes they were, they were more specific than that. And the most extreme cases I found were several cases of people who had been apparently possessed by the spirits, not only of humans, but of animals who died in the tsunami and exorcised by a Buddhist priest, and, and I got to know quite well a, a Buddhist priest who'd carried out a number of, of those exorcisms. These were really extraordinary stories. And those stories also became very important uh, in, in the writing of, of the book and, and in the, the narrative I was unfolding. Mm -hmm. Well, I think even if you go to Tohoku now and you visit those inundated areas where they've been affected by the tsunami, it is very eerie. You know, whether you believe it's a ghostly presence or just the lingering presence of the tsunami, it's a very strange place to visit, I think. Much of it, you know, the downtown kind of areas is completely normal. Whole sections of towns and cities where buildings survived and were restored feel completely fine. But then when you're walking through or driving through the area, you inevitably end up at these great zones near the sea where there's just nothing there. 
there's empty fields and maybe a fresh patch of gravestones, all of which have been or look to have been erected in the last 10 years. So it's a really very eerie place to visit. It, it is, yeah, it does. The, the places still have a very sad atmosphere. Long before this disaster, Tohoku had a kind of reputation for being a very spiritual place, a, a place of spirits and ghosts and, and hauntings. I mean, there's a long tradition of, of mediumship in, in Tohoku. These female shamans called Itako, who uh, communicate with the dead. And many people I spoke to there were consult- who had who'd lost loved ones were consulting with with mediums and shamans and 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 people who who believe they have this this gift to wrap up the conversation because i realize we're running short on time now 10 years on from the events at orkawa and the events of march the 11th how do you think about the disaster that unfolded there and the book that you ended up writing yeah it's funny a a 10-year anniversary of course prompts questions like that and I've been asked that question I've asked it of myself and I, I don't have a an, an easy answer well, one of the things I learned is that you know it is very um, human when disasters take place to to look for consolation and we, we look for silver linings because it's almost unbearable to contemplate otherwise and one of the consolations we take in disasters is that however terrible they are they they bring out the best in people um and that's true in in many ways but it's also true that the good that it brings out in people doesn't outweigh the destruction that it does and disasters destroy not only fields and buildings and homes and 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 families they they destroy relationships as well it's an ugly thing to recognise, but it's something we have to recognise, I, I, I think. There isn't a, a neat rounding off to be had after a disaster that kills 18,500 people, let alone, you know, poisons a, a whole area with radioactive fallout. But several things are obvious, um, or, or more obvious than they were. One is that natural disasters like this are terrible, but... If you are going to be caught in an earthquake or a tsunami, Japan is the very best place in the world to be. For example, seven years before the 2011 disaster, I covered another tsunami in the, in the Indian Ocean uh, from, from Aceh in Indonesia. And that was a similar-sized earthquake and tsunami. That one killed a quarter of a million people in, I think, 13 countries. The 18,500 deaths in Tohoku were, each one of them, a a terrible tragedy. But it could have been many, many times worse. And one of the reasons it wasn't worse was that Japan is prepared, that the buildings are strong, that they're built to resist the shocks, and that when there is a tsunami warning, most people know what to do and they beat it and go to higher ground. And for that, we should be grateful. I, I don't think 10 years as a landmark is going to mean very much to the the mothers I got to know, you know, who've, who've lost their kids. But the chances are that next time there's a tsunami, schools all over the country will take better care in responding quickly. And partly that is because of what happened to Okawa school and the tragedy of their children. So perhaps in that there is some frail consolation. 
Well, Richard, thank you so very much for joining me today. Thank you, Oscar. That was Richard Lloyd Parry, Asia editor at the Times of London. His book, Ghosts of the Tsunami, is available to order from all major booksellers. If you're enjoying Deep Dive, if you like this episode, please give us a rating or write us a review on your favourite podcasting platform or share this episode with someone you think might like it. Get in touch whenever you want. Reach out to me directly on Twitter at omhboyd or email the show at deepdive at japantimes.co.jp. That's it for this week. Until next time, podskare-sama. Thank you.